The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, sit back, pour yourself a nice tall glass of Windows Vista, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 123 with guest Chris Kinsman, recorded live Saturday, July 23rd, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASP.NET classes remotely online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who, ah, an iPod, how quaint, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is Carl here on the east coast of the United States of America, and you're listening to .NET Rocks. Thank you. Uh, today is Saturday. I know we usually record on Friday, but for some reason, now what reason is it that we're recording on Saturday? Ah, oh, yes. My partner in crime went fishing. Yes, I did. And you caught, you caught something, did you? More than a cold, you mean? <laughs> Well, you must have. Yeah, caught we something. came back with a bit of fish. the uh, The salmon fishing wasn't all that good, but we came back with a few. Richard Campbell, ladies and gentlemen, from Vancouver, British Columbia, my co-host. So, what uh, what was when you when I talked to you last night for the first time since you've been back? You were like, "Oh my God, have I got stories for you?" What uh, what was what was the experience like? What are you what are you holding back on us? Well, you know, none of it's very polite. You're talking about 50-odd men stuck in a bunkhouse in the middle of nowhere, British Columbia, which, believe me, is really nowhere, <laughs> with nothing to do but go out on the boats with sharp instruments, doped up on on uh, gravel, trying to keep from being sick because the seas are so heavy, and getting drunk every night. Is it like Dramamine? The stuff that- Dramamine, yeah. Motion sickness, yeah. Dramamine by day, booze by night. That's <laughs> what you do for a week, Right. And my wife's reaction when I when I get back into town is, so do you have to go to detox? <laughs> well, you sort your schedule sort of you know screwed up my whole weekend. Thank you very much. I should be at Karen's no. party right now, but no. <laughs> Actually, it was not that bad, but and it's not that bad. We yeah. got it worked out. We got it worked out. 
Hey, uh, what's been happening in Canada? Anything you want to plug or mention? Because I got like three or four emails here. Is there anything that uh, you want to talk about? Let's go to the emails. I've been I've been totally disconnected for a week. I mean, we're talking no telephone. If you want to communicate with the outside world, you got to use shortwave radio. <laughs> okay. So I haven't a clue. What I do know is I have 250 unread emails in my inbox after filtering for spam and other junk. Oh wow! So I'm completely lost. Wow. You know, uh, this is quite uh, an exciting moment for us in .NET Rocks history because, and I, although I want to go into a lot of details, I feel like I really can't, but I've been, we've been hinting about it for the last couple of shows. And, and just to reiterate what we're up to, I think we ought to tell the people that we're working on the official name of this now is the .NET Rocks VB 2005 road trip, right? And although we don't have a lot of details, we are going from Boston down through the South uh, over to Texas and then over to California and up to San Francisco starting, we think, October 12th and ending in San Francisco on November 7th, blogging and doing a new show every day in a big RV with uh, you and me and Jeff and Mark Miller is even going to join us for a week there. And uh, we're going to have a driver. We're going to meet people out in uh, these different events, at user groups, and uh, we'll have an official list of the places we're going and when we're going, maybe by next week, we hope, and, uh, and some more details about it. But I just want to plant the seed that, you know, look for us uh, driving by your front door in October and early November. The at Rocks Roadshow. And this is fully sanctioned and supported and sponsored by Microsoft. And uh, we're just going to, man, we're going to have a, a heck of a good time. We're going to give away some mobile devices and show off the new stuff in mobility and in VB 2005. And uh, I've, I've been looking forward to this thing for a long time. So we'll, we'll tell you more on uh, next week's show. Okay, on to the email. First one is from uh, Dennis Botger, and I think that's how you say his name, B-O-T-T-J-E-R, uh, J-E-R rather, Carl and Richard. I've been listening to the show for quite a while, and I think it's great. Lately, you've been asking for flames, so here goes one. I've heard you VBNet loving monkeys announce nearby code camps, but where's the love for Florida? Jacksonville, Florida is having a code camp on August 27, 2005. And if you guys weren't so busy shrinking URLs, maybe you'd have visited our site at jacksdug.com and announced it. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't, they apparently don't need a shrinkster. It's jaxdug.com. Go check it out. Love the show. You guys rock. Announce the code camp. Dennis, no, I'm not going to announce the code camp. Sorry. We can't do that. Okay, so the next one is Carl and Richard. <laughs> well, okay. 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 That's all there is to say about that, really. Uh, hi, Carl and Richard. I just finished listening to the generic show with Kathleen Dollard. There were some things that I had in mind while listening, but when I heard her opinion about XML documentation, I was shocked. In fact, I think that stupid ometer or what you were talking about should beep from for Kathleen when she talks such things about XML documentation, and he's got a smiley face there. He didn't mean that in a mean way. Seriously, I think XML documentation is one of the most wonderful aspects of Visual Studio.net uh, and C Sharp, especially if you use it with a tool such as NDOC. That's N-D-O-C. I think you already know that, but just in case, uh, the website is ndoc.sourceforge.net. I do admit that the default built-in, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it makes uh, help files and 
documentation out of those comments. I do admit that the default built-in VSNet 2003 help file generation is a little bit lame, but with NDoc you can generate just about the most wonderful reference documentation for your source code. Well, there you go. Plus, it is free, so that cannot be an excuse for not using it. We use it at our company regularly, XML documentation and NDoc. In fact, I had to create a small tutorial for the others how to create these special comments. But it's well worth the time. Before that, all technical documentation of the source code was just plain too simple and not really accurate in a bunch of Word doc files as well. Now everyone is required to use XML documentation, and people even like it better than maintaining separate docs. Uh, with XML documentation, it's also very easy to maintain the sync between code and the documentation, not to mention how easy it is to create cross-references, example code, etc. With NDoc, the XML documentation really becomes powerful when you generate CHM or supply HTML versions of the documentation. Uh, so he goes on to say wonderful things about NDoc, and he says, and I just heard from your show that now VB gets generics. Uh, no, no, I got to say that again. And I just heard from your show that now VB gets it as well. Uh, that's XML documentation. So I guess maintaining a unified documentation of even a hybrid language project should be no problem at all. I wish they had something like this for Visual C++. Although there are some problems with the XML documentation approach, you can counter those easily with NDoc. For example, for namespaces, there is by default no documentation, but NDoc uses a dummy class's documentation as the namespace doc. And formatting and creating a fancy namespace documentation can mean a lot. You can describe how to use classes and how your things work, etc. Uh, that's about all I can think of right now, but I'm also interested in what you think about this. Still love the show. Uh, regards, Leonard Gunda. Yeah, thanks. That's a, it, that's a, a, a nice, thoughtful um, reply by an engaged listener who was listening to Kathleen's show. So uh, thanks for that. And Leonard, we'll send you a, uh, you know, a .NET Rocks mug or lunchbox or any other piece of uh, DNR crap that you'd like. All right, so here we go. Hi, Carl and Richard. This one is from Halifax, up in your country, but my side of the world, Richard. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Canada's a big country, too. Yes. Hi, hi, Carl and Richard. I just finished listening to show number 122. This is great. And I couldn't resist commenting on the so-called smartphone thing. I think it's nuts to try to pack everything into a cell phone. Who wants to surf the net, read email, or watch a video on the screen a size of your eyeball? Not Jeff, did you hear that? Do do do. Jeff? Did anybody else did anybody else hear it though? I heard it. Alright, okay, then I'll say it again. Pick it up, yeah. Who wants to surf the net? Wait a minute. Who wants to surf the net, read email, or watch a video on a screen the size of your eyeball, not to mention typing anything real with those microscopic multi-purpose keys? The one so-called practical use, practical in quotes, that was mentioned by Russ was that when he was out with his wife, he could just surf the web to find out what movies were playing. Why not just use a plain old cell phone to put in a call to the local multiplex? I can't believe people actually pay for these things, or perhaps they don't. I'll bet that the lion's share of these devices, like your guests, are paid for by the businesses where they can be written off so that the rest of us taxpayers pick up the tab. Maybe it's an age thing. I don't buy bottled water either, but my daughter, who lives and works in the U.S., firmly believes that our really good tap water is not as healthy as the stuff she and her friends line up to buy in plastic bottles. Interestingly, the Halifax Public Water Utility 
bottles some of its tap water, adds a fancy label with an H2O logo on it, and gives it away at public events. The younger people don't seem to get the joke. They actually believe that the bottled tap water is better than what is available at their houses. I'm sure that these are the same folks who regularly pay for the ringtones and buy those disposable battery-operated quadruple-bladed razors that are advertised on television. Oh, well. Regards and best wishes. <laughs> Howard Harowitz, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Howard, man, you sound like a COBOL programmer. What can I say? I <laughs> I agree with some of what you're saying, but uh, some, you know... Um, uh, you know, I thought I, the most compelling app that Russ had on his phone was the shopping list one. That you got to admit, that's cool. That's some, totally cool. It's something you, you run can't into do all that the time. With, yeah, you can't do that with just a cell phone. That's yeah. true. So yeah, you I, know, what do we end up doing? You end up phoning your wife and going, "Do we need anything?" She goes, "Uh, I can't think of anything." And then when you get home, she says, "Hey, you know what you could have picked up." But what he's talking about though is a sentiment I think that's echoed by a lot of people in business, which is. You know, they see people with these devices and they think they're cool and stuff, but, you know, it's 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 difficult for them to make a sort of a creative jump to, you know, what can I do with this to make myself more productive? You know, where's where's the savings in time and money? So, uh, you know, that's what I think we should be thinking about. Anyway, uh, we asked for flames. We wanted flames, Richard. As people know, this is a good one. This is the last email I'll read. Flame on. It's clobbering time. Let's see. How can I break it to you gently? You suck. Your show <laughs> sucks. You suck. Even your website sucks. I am appalled and disgusted that you perverts would choose to have pictures of Goatza and Tub Girl in the upper right corner of your homepage. Wait a minute. Oh, my God. Those are your photographs. For the love of God, do not reproduce. <laughs> Carl, I first had the displeasure of becoming acquainted with your repulsive personage from the old Carl and Gary site. Whatever happened to Gary? For that matter, whatever happened to Mark and Rory? I'll tell you what happened to them. Their body parts are now in pickle jars in your cellar, you psychopath. I bet you already have a pickle <laughs> jar dynamo labeled with Richard's name. And Richard, you have also achieved heretofore unpre unprecedented levels of suckiness. I noticed that you have a mustache. You know who else had a mustache? Hitler! That's who, you Nazi! You aren't even an American, you commie pinko! You've moved so far to the left, you've hit the ocean and had to start moving up the coast! By this time next year, if Carl hasn't cast you aside for a new toy boy yet, you'll be phoning in from an island with a, in the Bering Strait on your inevitable migration to Russia, where pinko Nazis like you belong! They could replace you with a 200-pound slab of Canadian bacon, and nobody would notice the difference! <laughs> I'm seriously 250 pound, thanks. <laughs> I'm seriously considering replacing my iPod headphones with a pair of those alien ear slugs Khan tortured Chekhov with. I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> sure they're ex they'll cause excruciating pain as they burrow their way into my brain, but it will be immensely more pleasurable than listening to your insipid drivel every week. And then he has to say as if, right? Nah, just kidding. I love you guys, man. Brian Schreyer. University City, Missouri. Brian, thanks. That was one of the more uh, creative uh, flames that we've gotten in a while. So I think that's about enough of uh, as much pre-babble as our listeners can take. And hey, I got called a Nazi. What more do you want from a flame? How many times now have you been called a Nazi by flame? Mm. Uh, well, several. Several. I don't, I don't see it. I don't know. I don't know. All right, well, let's talk to Chris. Chris Kinsman, our old pal, is the founder of Virgin Software. 
He has been doing .NET development since ASP Plus was first in the alpha stages. That's right. I said ASP Plus. Current, yeah. current interests include Compact Framework, Widby, and Yukon. And that is the bio that I got. Of course, this guy has been around since the very beginning. And uh, one of one of his uh, claims to fame is he built DevX.com. Welcome, yes. Chris. How are you? Thank you, guys. It's great to be here. Great to have you back. Yeah, I guess that's true. I had a very brief appearance here on .NET Rocks a few years ago, about yeah. 10, 15 minutes on a success story show, I think it was, or and something it, like you that. You know, and it just wasn't enough. We had to have yeah, that. Yeah, here I am back for the full thing. I loved your discussion <laughs> about smartphones, though. Yeah, it's it's kind of neat, though, that you see that attitude that, you know, people think it's just glitz and glitter and, well, in my day, you know, we had regular old cell phones and we liked it. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll tell you what, one of the things I was pretty excited when I first got a smartphone that I could write my own apps for. Yeah. Because one of the first apps I wrote, living in Seattle, Redmond, Washington area where I'm at, the traffic here just sucks. <laughs> and so... Uh, one of the first apps I wrote for my smartphone is basically an app that shows me how the traffic is across the bridges. How did you do that? Uh, web so service I fire or up a little smartphone app that I wrote. Uh, what it does is it goes out to the uh, Washington State Department of Transportation's website, nice. grabs a binary file, which actually contains traffic flow volumes off of sensors in the road. Wow. And I blow that thing out into a whole object model and then actually paint a map on the smartphone device or the pocket <laughs> PC device. <laughs> and show what the flow volumes are at, and you know certain parts of the road the traffic moving good, or certain parts of the road the traffic stopped, etc. Wow! So cool little app. It's actually um, I was going to mention I'm actually calling you from my hotel room here uh-huh. in Portland, Oregon. I'm not in Redmond today. What are you doing up the there? The reason for that is I'm at the first West Coast Code Camp today. Hey, all right. Speaking of code wow. camps. Your old friend Tom Robbins back there, obviously, his yep. invention, I guess, or his yep. inspiration. Yeah, it was his idea, yeah. But I'm out here. I'm going to be showing that application tomorrow, and I'll actually probably be posting it up on my uh, blog here in the next couple of days so everybody can check it out and see what they think of it. And, hey, Chris, did you realize that they actually have a code camp happening in Jacksonville, Florida? What do you know? Jack's Doug. Yes, they do. Jack'sDoug.com. Did we mention Jack'sDoug.com? I thought we weren't going to plug it on the show. I've been down there and met those guys, actually. I think I did an Identigig down there about a year and a half ago or so. Yeah, jackstug.com. It's a pretty good jackstug.com kind of website down there. They're doing a jackstug.com code camp in uh, Jacksonville, jackstug.com, Florida. Yeah, what do you know? (laughs) Yeah. So you you said the Compact Framework is one of your loves. uh, Did you listen to the show last week we did with Russ Namhauser? I did. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, it was yeah. A, it was, I, I've done a bit of stuff with it. I, I must admit, some of the stuff I've done hasn't really been consumer based. Yeah. Uh, some of the stuff I've been doing has been more for folks that are actually making their own custom hardware and need to then write UIs to run on that custom hardware. So it's stuff that consumers would typically ever ne- never see. Actually, well, and of course, this is the stuff that drives business. So you know, this is the stuff that we're really interested in. And what kind of things have you done? So uh, actually, the coolest one we did, which it actually hasn't rolled out yet, we're waiting to see it. Um, is an application that's written in Compact Framework that's used for doing the interaction that you would have with a slot machine. Cool. So when you go into a a casino and you throw your player card in the slot, um, what you'd actually get is a 320 by 240 screen that would say, welcome to the Wynn Casino, for example, 
Um, and it would actually be a touchscreen interface playing movies and all kinds of stuff like that. And that was actually something that we wrote all in compact framework and under a contract for a particular company that makes gear for slot machines. Neat. So. And what, what uh, kind of uh, transport did you use there? Uh, in this particular case, meaning to talk to the other stuff. Yeah. So we wrote the interface, which was all done in compact framework, and used something actually very similar to XAML to kind of create the UI. Hmm. The actual communication was then done to native code services that were running on the custom-built hardware that they had, okay. uh, by and large via Windows Messages, as it turns out. Windows Messages. So you were using, what, what exactly does that mean? Windows messages. Meaning we were using the message loop of the uh, Compact Framework app to actually send messages cross-process amongst the various processes on the machine. Message queue. No, not message no, queuing. No, lower than the actual that. This Windows is, this is OS loop. stuff. Windows messages so, being, uh, uh, maybe I don't, maybe it's something that I don't know. So this isn't sockets. This is higher than that? Uh, this is what you used to do back in the Windows 2X days when you had to write your apps and see. Oh, messages. Plus. Oh, of course. Like and send you had to write message, a Windows message loop? Like send message, peak message, etc. You got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty boring, but was you know effective for what we needed to do to communicate across processes on this very constrained little machine. So between the compact framework and this uh, other and the machine, native apps. And the native apps on this other device, you were, you were using Windows messages? Yep. How can you get a handle to a message uh, to a window across process? Uh, so actually, we were using broadcast messages, okay. which you're capable of doing okay. across processes, and that worked out just fine. They had, actually, the tricky part was actually getting a handle to the Windows message loop in Compact Framework. Yeah. Um, there's some little bits that came out actually as an upgrade in 1.1 that actually enable you to get at the Windows message loop. That's not something that's normally wasn't exposed, actually, in Compact Framework 1.0. Dude, that's a great idea. Yeah, it's it's, it's that stuff we haven't had to touch in years. No, it was really weird to be playing with it. It's kind of a blast from the past going back to those. Yeah, those I'm getting flashbacks. Days. Yeah, really. And that's why I said I've never heard of that, but I spent a lot of my life doing that. Um, yep. What to, now, whose idea architecturally was it to go that way? Uh, not ours. <laughs> Basically, in this particular situation, what it ended up happening is uh, we got a call from this client who was saying, do you guys do any of that Windows CE stuff? We have to have something ready for a demo in about three weeks. Mm. And they had already written a lot of the underlying native stuff, but they had no UI. Mm. And basically, they brought us in saying, we've got to have something we can demo in about three weeks. We need you to crank together a UI. Mm. We looked at it and said, okay, we could write it in embedded C++, yeah. or we could write it in compact framework. Yeah. And guess which one we chose. Yeah. <laughs> who wouldn't? Pretty easy decision there. Yeah, who wouldn't? And uh, you obviously didn't consider the last generation of you know embedded VB or anything like that. Um, we, we could have looked at doing it, but again, it was just going to be so limiting in terms of the embedded VB at the time was not even really full VB. It was yeah. more almost VB script, right. as right. it turned out, on the device. And we knew we were going to have to be interacting with these various native mode applications. Hmm. We knew potentially we were going to have to be making some calls to actually native DLLs in yeah. some cases, because we actually wrote our interface to direct play and animated GIF interfaces and things like that that don't exist in Compact Framework. And that was very doable in Compact Framework. It would have been tough to do, I think, in embedded VB. To be quite honest, I haven't used a lot of embedded VB, but um, my understanding is it's a little constrained. Yeah, that's been my understanding, too. So Anyway, it worked out pretty well. 
But that was a ways back, to be quite honest. You know, I wish there was enough work out there in the world that we could be doing embedded stuff full-time, but sadly, that's not the world in which we live. What are you working on most of the time these days, uh, Chris? Yeah, so most of the time nowadays, the last, gosh, last while now, I've been actually working for a company up here in the Redmond area uh, doing software architecture for a very large application that's meant to manage insurance agencies, as it turns out. Hmm. So uh, they're an application service provider that provides a solution for anywhere from an insurance agency that has one person to an insurance agency that might have a 1,000 people. Um, they provide them software via an a- application service provider model to manage their business. So you could think of it as kind of an accounting system with a CRM system kind of all blended together and in a very vertical industry specifically to serve these guys' needs. All those little odd rules that insurance companies have about oh, and special tasks they have yeah. to do. I've learned more about insurance in the last three years than I ever wanted to know. Sounds like it an is. application you can <laughs> knock out in a weekend, right? <laughs> well, it was actually, uh, when I was brought in, the application was all done in C++ and VB. And it, they've been around, actually, the company for 22 years, if I remember right. Wow. And the scary thing, and this is this weird thing about insurance, there are guys... They're at that company today that were there when it started 22 years ago. Wow. They have, like, this team photo of the first, like, eight people. And of that eight people, five of them still work at that same company. Jeez. It's, just, <laughs> it's so bizarre to see after going through the whole dot-com boom where, right. you know, you were lucky to see one guy in the same place for six months, let alone three years. Yeah. But anyway, so what we ended up doing is we, I ended up coming in there to look at re-architecting that thing and bringing it into the .NET world. Yeah. And it was about a year-long project originally because it was a fairly large app. You know, it had, it had actually started out on the VAX mm. and moved from the VAX to running under DOS with Btrieve, if you remember any of that stuff. Oh, yeah. And yes. from DOS with Btrieve, it actually moved into kind of a two-tier world with C++ and SQL Server, and then some VB kind of got added on the side. And by the time we were done, it was about, I don't know, it was about 10 million lines of code that we started from as our start point to move to .NET. And so Ouch. I was trying to think about it in the context of how do we make that work in .NET. And one of the reasons they were looking to move to .NET, to be quite honest, was because they had had a push in this application service provider space to actually offer it as an ASP. Because with this two-tier app, that meant a lot of these small insurance companies, think about you know a two-person mom-and-pop insurance company having to install SQL servers so they can run their business. Yep. Yeah. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe more so now that we have MSDE, but back you know, a few years ago, that was right. pretty cost prohibitive. Yeah. And so their whole idea of turning this into an application service provider app was, we'll use Citrix. Of course. Well, that's what a lot of people do. So it seemed like a great idea. Yeah, until you have more than six or eight people doing it. Yeah, Yeah, it was really successful. And they ended up with, I can't remember, you know, in the thousands of agencies running this thing over Citrix. Oh, man. And ended up with over a thousand servers in their data center supporting Citrix. Mm. Oh, of course. Yeah. Which... You can imagine the incremental cost now of adding a user Yep. when I've got to go ahead and provision enough Citrix boxes on the back end to support them. Yeah. yeah. That happens Not a lot, Not to mention though. the fact that I have to license Office in my data center. 
Yeah. So it's in their Citrix, yeah. you know, workspace, as it were. And then also in the industry they're in, the types of things these people type to, tend to do is they, for example, one of the big things now in the insurance industry is what they term Im- imaging. In other words, all the correspondence that comes into the office, they don't want to file that. Right. They want to scan it right into the computer and actually make it a part of whoever's record happens to be there. Yep. How do you do that with Citrix? <laughs> Chris, uh, this is an all too common scenario that I'm hearing a lot these days. Yeah, that uh, you know, Citrix is was the sort of poster child of you know solving the whole scalable uh, client server issue with Windows applications in the last ten years, right? Or so, and now you know that these things are getting big and expensive and and hard to maintain. I, I can't but help. I can't help but think that the sort of the smart client revolution must be perking up some ears all around corporate America for for that particular reason, don't you think? I I, I definitely think so. I, I think that don't get me wrong. I think that Citrix has its place. I think there's some Absolutely. places that Citrix makes a lot of sense. A, an example might be, for example, um, a hospital. Yeah. Where I don't want a computer with all its fans and everything else sitting in a client room. Yeah being able to set up a whole rack of blade servers in some back data center and just have a little box that's entirely solid state with no fans in the client room, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. But the you flip know, side is, solutions. you know, I'm going to have a few hundred of those. Right. When I've got an application like my client was trying to do, you know, where literally the scale-out is how many they can sell, all of a sudden, that's a pretty expensive solution, not to mention the fact that, you know, I've got all these computers sitting on desktops out there, and all right. of those resources are, by and large, going to waste, right? Yeah. It's yes. just another form of web app, for all intents and purposes, in my mind. Citrus is definitely one of those technologies that just fails under its own success. It works just fine in small groups. If you want an app to go to 10 or 12 people, that's fine. Once you get into the thousands, you're in trouble. I would say hundreds. Well, and the weird thing is, one of the reasons that's now driving things back, I think the initial move to Citrix was kind of as Carl identified. It was this issue with it's so difficult to roll out software and actually control desktops. You know, going back to that glass house, I want to have a standard desktop image. You can't vary from it, et cetera, et cetera, was kind of, I think, the initial genesis. And then I think as we went to web apps, that was not quite as important. But now you're seeing, actually, because of things like HIPAA and things like that, folks moving back that direction. Because mm. folks are looking at it from the standpoint that now I can actually have all that data in my data center where I don't have to worry about a hard drive walking off. Right. And I can actually have a device sitting on their desktop that they can't hook a USB key up to. And so I can theoretically guarantee that my data is a little bit more secure. A little weird. You know, we kind of digress. But so what we ended up doing is we ended up replacing the Citrix system, which had, I think, well over 1,000 servers. I might have this number wrong. I thought it was around 1,400 um, when I first came on there, um, with a solution that's based around a combination of ASP.NET and Smart Client and currently runs on six servers. But you got the same C count, Chris? Yep. Same C count. That's a so, pretty and, impressive. And actually... Before I say same seat count, we are actually currently converting the folks off of the Citrix systems onto the newer system. They're not all converted. We're probably about a third of the way there today. But looking at where we're at in terms of scale, 
we probably won't have to add any additional servers to convert them all all, all over. Greg Lowe is in the chat room, and he says uh, the biggest problem for smart clients is corporate edicts that require ASP-style apps. I see clients doing massively complex web apps to do interaction with things like Excel on the desktop because they are required to. Yeah. That was originally when this app started out. It was That was the edict. It was going to be a, quote, Internet application. It was going to be ASP. Yeah. And we started looking at the types of things we needed to do. You just brought up a great one potentially needing to interact with Excel and Word. A little bit difficult. Difficult from a web app. Another one, having to interact with a local scanner on the system to yeah. do document imaging. Yeah, that document capture. A little bit difficult. Not, not insurmountable, but difficult. And then the third one was just the type of things that these users did. A, a great example might be um, one of the things an insurance agent might be doing is writing a corporate or a commercial auto insurance policy. A commercial auto insurance policy, depending on the company, might have 70 vehicles on it, might have 300 vehicles on it. Can you imagine you know, entering one piece of vehicle information and having mm. to hit add and that thing posting all the way back to a server in a data center and waiting yeah. for the page to come back so that you can enter the next vehicle? Right. So bulk data entry, not a really... Exactly. These are folks that want to be able to do head-down data entry, you know, that want that very quick, responsive, local validation, all of that stuff happening very quick. If not locally. cut and paste, right? I mean, most of the, the smart client uh, customers I've seen, they want to be able to like select a range of stuff in Excel, paste it into your app, and have all of the, you know, have everything map over nicely. Hey, can you do that? How can we do that? I mean, anything that just takes away the time to to type in anything. Yeah. And so we ended up, you know, going the smart client route and we we think it worked out pretty well in our case. Especially if you're transcribing something like a VIN number, those are just saw, you know, now you're talking about a 16 character number alphanumeric. You're guaranteed to botch it. It's already in digital form somewhere. Don't type it again. Yep. You know, don't you dare. 300 cars, you'll never get them right. Right. Folks, do yourself a favor and check out our friends Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.NET. Very nice stuff. You compile the uh, the reports right into your application, ship them with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine, and you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports too. So, great stuff. Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They, uh, 
You know, they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. So we actually do also a lot of import and export to back-end carrier systems and things like that, also so you don't have that rekeying and things along those lines. But that's been fairly successful, that whole effort. Um, we've actually rolled out, I think, four versions now in .NET, and the customers are loving it. And so now I've been given a new edict, and it's kind of a new one for me because it's out in new territory, as it were, and that is we've got all these customers, insurance agencies, all their data lives in our data center, mm-hmm. and we have this application that we give them that they can use to interact with that data. But now let's take it a step further, and now let's provide business intelligence on that data to them. Yeah, that's, that's So today, the, the only thing that they can do is run canned reports, yep. which I think is similar to a lot of corporations. What's your experience, Richard? Yeah, absolutely. You know, most people want the... Uh, pivoted view of their entry forms. Yeah. You know, the, it's just straight up can report where data analysis is really all right. Well, here's a group of uh, related bits of information. Look at it however you want. And it's hard for people to get their heads around that stuff. Although when you do it for them, I have this demo that I do. It's like a 45 minute demo where I take a typical sales order system and then throw it into a cube and do a couple of slices and dices and half the time VP start crying at the table just because it's so quick to, to drill for information. Yeah. I, I try to make the analogy to essentially it's a way to explore your data, right? It's a way for yeah, you to nice. look at it that might enable you to actually make some associations that you might not have made looking at a 70 page printed report. Well, in custom reporting was supposed to be this promise, right? The, 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 uh, the promise of users creating reports. That's what it was about. Only they get lost in the joining of data in a relational data model. They never get it right. Yeah. Well, part of that's because if you look at the relational data models that we have in place, they're not optimized for reporting. No, exactly. They're optimized for the opposite. They're optimized for transactional throughput, right? Yeah, that's right. Which means they're very normalized. And then we get these magic things. Have you ever you know, gotten one of those, quote, data dictionaries? They slap yeah. that three-inch thick telephone book down on your desk and expect the end users to figure out what the relationships between the tables are so that they can write reports. <laughs> so, so what's the solution to that problem? So um, what we've done, at least at this point, we kind of looked into Yukon because Yukon kind of had a couple of promises in this area, you know, SQL Server 2005, when I say Yukon. The idea of you may have heard of this term called their unified dimensional model. Mm-hmm. Have you heard this one, Richard? I've heard the term. So what do you think of the unified dimensional model? I think it's going to take a long time for anybody to get good at that. Well, I think it's a confusing term, to be quite honest. Yeah. Because it gives you this view. When I hear unified combined with dimensional model, at least the thinking in my head when I looked at that was, oh, what that allows me to do is essentially create metadata that describes the relationships amongst my transactional data and essentially gives me a digital version of that data dictionary. That was at least what I thought when I first yeah, heard I could it. I buy that. 
And, and it's definitely not that. No. <laughs> In point of fact, what, from what I've seen at least, and uh, is basically it's, okay, what we want you to do is we want you to actually create a true data warehouse where the data warehouse is something that's very different than your transactional store, as opposed to using a you know, third normal form type of modeling, you're going to typically do something termed dimensional modeling, which means that in most cases you're going to be denormalizing the data instead of normalizing it, which really drives DBAs insane. Oh, sure. I've been working with a couple DBAs on this project, and they keep saying, you can't do that. <laughs> that's wrong. Well, isn't one of the... Uh... One of the ideas of SOA to have separate databases for reporting than you have for actual uh, data that we're going to well, use to in the well, application. Well, I don't know if that's a tenet of SOA. SOA just one of the tenets is that theoretically we aren't sharing schema and that we aren't right. tightly coupling potentially our systems together. But in many cases, when you're looking at your reporting, your reporting is really a core piece of the system. Right. But the problem typically is is that the transactional system is just not designed or set up doing same reporting. That's what I was going to say. Your your data structures for reporting should be optimized totally differently from your transactional data structures. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. This is actually, hilariously enough, something I learned long ago about, God, I can't remember how long it was ago, probably 10 years ago, I did some work at Microsoft and we wrote a system for Microsoft internally called MS Sales. And this was actually the first sales reporting system that Microsoft had that enabled them to look at worldwide sales across all their subsidiaries within 24 hours of the sale occurring. It used to actually take them 30 days to get final sales figures. Mm. And so this was a huge project. I wasn't the only guy on the project. It was... Um, being done by a combination of some of the internal Microsoft folks who were in a group called ITG at that time, along with uh, Anderson Consulting, if you remember those guys. Mm -hmm. Oh, and yeah. Anderson, their main job was to figure out how to extract data from, if I remember the number right now, seven or eight different accounting systems, three of which were custom-written from the Ouch. subsidiaries around the world and pull all of that data back to Redmond, Washington. It would then be processed, rolled up, normalized into a particular currency. We would take a currency feed also from Reuters that would actually come into this at the same time. And then that data would be processed and pushed out to regional data centers, in this case in Japan, Ireland, Australia, and U.S., which would then be the source for all of this reporting. And what I was responsible for doing was writing the UI for this whole thing. And so we were writing along, you know, creating this UI and trying to figure out a way that we could create self-service reports off of this data because the whole idea was that people should be able to kind of start to explore some of the trends and relationships. And we had some key criteria that they gave us. One of them was, I should be able to look at worldwide sales down to the SKU level in dollars, and that query should run in less than two minutes. We thought, okay, <laughs> that's a benchmark we can shoot for. And you've got to realize the era this was in. We were using, do you remember sequent wind stations? Oh, man, that rings a bell. They're the size of about a washing machine that you use. And they were dual 4666s, and we had a 7-gigabyte <laughs> array, 7-1-gig drive. that was monster. We thought we were hot stuff back then. And this was all on SQL Server 6.0. 
So that, again, gives you kind of a time frame there. And yeah. there was no way in heck we were going to get that query to run in two minutes. It was taking, given the, you know, the normalized stores that they were reading all of this stuff into, 15, 20 minutes in some cases for this query to run. And what we ended up doing to try and meet that is we went out and actually created our own aggregation tables based upon what we knew were going to be common roll-ups of that data. And then we wrote our own query optimization engine that based upon the particular fields that users were choosing, we would automatically pick the correct aggregation table that was built into the database. Well, it makes perfect sense to do that. You know, and and you don't have to stop with one server or one database for one view, right? I mean, there's this can scale, you know? Right. In fact, it did. Again, it was a fight with the DBAs because what we were doing was we were denormalizing all the data, flattening it out, and creating multiple aggregation levels. Right. And that was going exactly opposite of what the DBAs were trying to do. But they're thinking in that that you what you were going to use it for, right? You're not going to use that for for entering data and for for processing transactions. But they didn't see the difference. Yeah. You know, it had been drilled into them. Remove all duplication. Yeah. Yeah. Thou shalt not store the same data in more than one place. You know, flake everything off into separate tables, multiple joins. And we went radically the other direction. Yeah. You know, just trying to remove as many joins as possible, because I don't know if you remember, but SQL Server 6.0 actually had a limit on the number of joins you could do in a single query. Yes, I remember. I believe it was 17. It was seventeen. It was either sixteen or seventeen, but yeah, yeah it was right in that range. Yeah. So when you've got this huge data warehouse for all intents and purposes, where you've got users potentially pulling in any, in any particular field, we had to do something along these lines. Right. And the thing that's bizarre is looking back on that now. That's what OLAP does today for us for free, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's exactly what OLAP does. Yeah. But it was a fun project, but it was kind of my first introduction to that fact that, you know, you're kind of in this conflict with typical DBA types that don't understand the needs of reporting. Yeah. But you made a good point, too, Carl, in that, you know, one of the goals behind this is being able to move all of that reporting load off onto a separate server also potentially lowers the load on my transactional systems. Sure. Which is a very good thing also. And very yeah. necessary. So it's been a fun project, but it's been a strange place for me to be working because I don't see myself as a database guy typically. but. It's been a lot of fun, to say the least. Well, that that's funny because you, you you've done some of the 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 most real work in database application development that you know people that I know. You've been working huh. with this stuff for a long time. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't work with you side by side, but I'm trying to say, Chris, you're no slouch when it comes to data. I've done some. <laughs> I must admit, that's true. I just don't see myself like Richard and Stephen with their, you know windowing functions and all the crazy stuff they talk about at TechEd there, or Kim or whoever. Yeah, <laughs> you're probably a seven or eight on the Kim scale, right? Maybe. It gets me by. But So actually one of the <laughs> cool things about this project, though, that it's let me explore has been SQL Server integration services. Yeah. Which I think just rock. I, I don't know if you've played with them much, but I used yeah, to play with Yeah, let's talk about them. What is it? So SQL Server Integration Services is the replacement for the Data Transformation Services, or DTS, that became available, and I can't remember what version. Was it 7.0 or 2000, Richard? I think it was 7. 7, yeah. I think it was, it was one of the two, yeah, 7.0. And, and it was part of the suite of tools uh, to support OLAP Server. If you're going to have an OLAP Server, you need to be able to source data from somewhere. So Transformation Services was about bringing that data in. Right, and back then everybody was talking about data pumps, if I remember right. That was kind of right. the term du jour. And now it's ETL. 
extract, transform, and load. But the funny thing is, if you look at what most people do, they actually do ELT, right? All yes. right. Um, you know, we have. I'm the acronym police here. You're going to have to uh, explain some of these. So extract means extract the data, transform it, in other words, change its structure, and then load it into a new system. That's typically what you have to do with data warehousing because you've got a source transactional system and you've got a destination warehouse. Source transactional systems normalized and set up for transactional throughput. Warehouse is by and large denormalized, set up based on your dimensional modeling techniques, and you've got to kind of match the two together because they've got an impedance mismatch there, right? Yep. So you typically have what's termed an extract, transform, load, or ETL process. Now, the, way I make, the reason I make that joke is people all say ETL, but most of the time the process is usually ELT, meaning extract, load, then transform. So what yeah. a lot of folks do is they extract it out of the source system, put it down on the destination system exactly in the same form it was on the source system. Yeah. They call it staging. And then they run a bunch of SQL queries against it to actually transform it into the final version of what they actually want to expose to the end users. And so it ends up being an ELT instead of an ETL. And if you look at what DTS did, DTS was a good first step, but man, was it limiting. limiting. I frustrated myself using that thing. Well, it was VB script, right? Have you ever written anything interesting in it there? I know a lot of people that were using it for, for example, taking an access database MDB file locally and moving it up to a server on a regular schedule. You know, I knew people who were using it like that. And of course, you know, to just move databases around. But in the way that you're doing it, I've never done it with an OLAP. But you, and, and you, and again, with DTS, because it was limited, the language was VB script. You could only do so much in that space. What I usually ended up doing was loading the table with DTS into the, into SQL server and then firing a stored procedure to do the transformation work. ELT. Yep. Exactly. And if you looked at DTS, if you ever wanted to do anything that was outside loading, it was great at loading. But if you wanted yes. to do something like looping, I don't know if you ever tried to write a loop in the DTS engine. It's not pretty. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it can be done. But, but it's really ugly. If you're going to loop, it's because you're doing conditional testing. And as yep. soon as you do conditional testing, where there's three or four paths out of the loop, you're in hell. It's a nightmare. And it's tough to debug, but it was there. You know, it was kind of the first step. Now we look at what yeah. the SQL Server integration service is, and it's the, you know... I guess this is only version 2, not properly version 3. But, man, have they made a big improvement. Not only in the it number really of is, tasks. It is 3, Chris. Is it version 3? Because, yeah, because DTS definitely took a jump between 7 and 2,000. So and this made must some be the magic version 3 that we always talk about, right? Yes. And it's the rewrite. They, <laughs> they started over. And it's, it's very good. You know, it's got this concept of control flow. So that there is definitely a concept of how flow works, first-class constructs for doing things like looping, tasks built in for touching things like FTP, web services, oh, hey. files on disk, and things along those lines, you know, built in. Those Excel were things that were a little tougher to do with DTS. And then finally, the concept of data flows. The idea that not only is there a control flow, this is kind of how the flow of my application works out, but I've also got data flowing between locations, and what do I want to do to that data to do that transform step we were talking about? 
And I've had a lot of fun working with it, to be quite honest. Uh, very straightforward compared to the old DTS. The other thing I'd add here is the exception handling. One of the things I loved playing with this was being able to come up with different filters and then say, and if it doesn't fall into those filters, drop it over here, and then keep adding filters until the exception list was small enough that I was happy with it. Right. Basically, you're talking about the fact in the data flows, when you do some action, you always have two choices on most of the tasks. It's, for example, I'm doing a lookup. A lookup's a really handy one if one of the things you're trying to do is map from a business key to a surrogate key that you might be using in your data warehouse. In that particular case, you're having to look up that business key to determine what the surrogate key is. Well, what happens if the lookup fails? You know, you don't actually have that surrogate key available yet in the warehouse. You need to do the appropriate thing. So now you've got the ability to say, okay, the lookup worked fine, so that's the nice green flow of my data. The lookup failed, so I'm going to take the error flow of the data, which is still just a data flow. It's still going to give me the failed row. And I'm going to map it out to another task that actually inserts, potentially, the value that I need in that dimension with its surrogate key, and then takes that row and brings it right back into the main flow so that I can do additional things to it. So just right. really clean. Yeah. Hey, Chris, um, you, you've been playing around with the Enterprise Library from the Patterns and Practices group? Oh, there's another thing we've been playing with a bit. Yeah, so I have. Uh, I had a lot of fun with Enterprise Library, done a couple projects with it now. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Enterprise Library, but basically the Patterns and Practices team had their what they called blue bricks. Right. Do you ever use any of those? Sure. Sure. Which ones do you use? I use the exception management block, and I've, I've used the data access block, although I don't use it regularly. So what do you think of them? Yeah, the, you know, some of them are great. Some of them are a little complex. Um, the user interface process I thought was a little complex, mm -hmm. but uh, I like the uh, I like the exception management. I like the data access. So basically, what the patterns and practices group did is they looked at those initial blue bricks that they put out there, which were put out there to be quite honest over time. Yep, they learned things as they put them out over time. Some of them were very successful. Some of them not so, to be quite honest. Yep, and tried to figure out. You know, how could we make these more successful and how could we make them kind of play together a little bit better, to be quite honest? Um, because one of the things as you started looking into some of those blocks, you realized they depended on other blocks. And in some cases, the way that they depended on the other blocks, the way you configured the other blocks they depended on was totally different than the way you configured the block you were actually trying to use. Well, yeah, they were written by different people, right? Exactly. So there was real no consistency to them, by and large. And so the team basically went out and said, Let's go ahead and kind of take a look at what our most popular ones were. Once we've gotten the most popular ones, let's think about how we can make a few changes to make these make a little bit more sense. Um, so they actually had a couple of different things that they did while they were doing that, kind of a couple main themes, as it were. Um, and what they looked at doing is saying, okay, let's go ahead and let's use four main themes. Let's make all the blocks more consistent. Meaning if there's a particular way I do something in one of the blocks, i.e. a particular pattern that I use, and it makes sense to use it in one of the other blocks, I'm going to do it the same way. So that once you learn it one place, theoretically, that knowledge will carry over to another place. Mm -hmm. Similar to a theme we might encounter in the .NET framework itself, sure. right? Yeah. Um, beyond that, let's also provide a little extensibility. 
So one of the problems that I ran into, at least with the old blue bricks, there are a few that I really liked. One of the ones I liked was one called the asynchronous invocation block, which I thought was just really handy. But the problem was is if you needed some additional facility or some additional capabilities, what were you stuck doing? Well, writing yourself. Well, you had two choices. You could write it yourself, or all of the blue bricks came with source code, right? Yep. Unsupported source code. So you could start partying on that source code. Unsupported source code, by the way. Exactly. And the problem with partying on the source code is you start partying on the source code, and they release a new version of the blue brick. Yep. Now you've got your customized version, and you've got this new one that came out with all these bug fixes that you really want the bug fixes. (laughs) It's an old story. But how are you going to blend them together? So in the extensibility space, what they really looked at doing is providing extensibility points throughout all of the blocks that would allow you to plug in new functionality or changed functionality without having to modify the base source code. Hmm. So you'll see a lot of usage of the plug-in style model or the yeah. plug-in pattern that we see in ASP.NET Love in it. 2.0 Love it. throughout the framework and various other things along those lines for extensibility. Um, the two other themes... Ease of use was one. So I kind of had this argument with a couple of the PAG guys. I told them, I should be able to download one of these blocks. I should be able to sit down with it for an hour. I I, I picture myself as a reasonably smart guy and that I can pick these things up pretty quick. If I can't figure out what I have to do with this thing in an hour, I'm not going to spend any more time on it. Yeah. That's basically it's audition (laughs) right there. If I can't figure it out in an hour... I'm probably going to pitch it. I'm going to say, I'm going to go look elsewhere. Not, not a bad rule in general, I would say. Yeah. They, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think that's unreasonable. And right. so they really looked at it from that standpoint of, you know, what are some of the pain points with some of these blocks? One of the clear pain points is just configuration. Configuration is so different. I've got a, you know, in one case, I've got a, a configuration section handler with a custom section that I have to use. In another yeah. case, it's just using the app configuration section of the config. Another case, maybe I've got my own configuration files that are totally separate for these different blocks. And so what they did is they went with a common configuration story and provided a graphical configuration tool for configuring all the settings. So now it's not me trying to figure out what are all the possible values for this particular setting in the config file. I've actually got a tool that I can use, open the config file, and I get you know, drop-downs and all the nice things for setting all the various configuration options. And I guess that answers this question uh, Octothorpe is asking in the chat room. Can you pass a simple connection string at runtime into the enterprise library version of the data access block? So that's so, a good question. So the, data, the enterprise library version of the data access block kind of stepped things up compared to the old data access block. If you use the old data access block, by and large all it was was a big static class with a bunch of helper methods. It was a pretty darn thin layer. It didn't really add a whole lot, to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, with the data access block in Enterprise Library, they kind of stepped it up a little bit. And one of the things that they added was connection string management. Because it's one of the things that, to be quite honest, a lot of people do a very poor job of. Um, putting them in clear text in the web.config. Yep. You know, various other things that we rail against in various forums about that type of thing. Use triple DS or DPAPI or something, but encrypt that well, thing. Well, so what they did is they have a, as part of their configuration tool, you can enter the connection strings that the various data access blocks are going to use, 
and they provide default to PAPI encryption. So that's just built into the configuration tool, and it's built into the data access block for actually reading those strings the whole nine yards. Hey, you just said DPAPI, right? Correct. All right, DPAPI. I'm acronym police here. The Data Protection API. Yeah. I think it was new, if I remember right, in Windows Server 2000, but I think we also picked it up in XP, if I remember right. Yeah. So they provide built-in implementation for that, which is kind of nice, because there was no implementation in .NET 1.0 or 1.1. You had to create a little shim wrapper. I know I created one. I think you did, too, if I remember right, Carl. Well, I was going to say, I didn't create it. Scott Stanfield's company, Vertigo, did. I'm not sure if okay. he wrote it himself, but, yeah, it was part of the, uh, the shim was part of uh, the issue vision. Oh, sure. And I just took it out, turned it into a little DLL, and put it up on my website on the .NET. Yeah, that was from utilities. Dev Days, if I remember Dev right. Dev Days, yep. 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 So, basically, they, you know, they basically handle connection string management for you, so you don't have to worry about that. There you go. Now, the downside is, if you want to worry about it, yeah, right. what do you have to do? Well, as it turns out, you can still go ahead and do your own connection string management. The only thing that you have to do is that you have to, when you create the instance of the database access block that you're going to be using, the way it, you do it by default, if you're using their built-in connection string management, is you have a factory that you call and you say, create me an instance of the data database, uh, create me an instance of the data access block for this database configuration that I've set up in my config file. Mm. And it knows how to grab the configuration string. It knows what type of a database you're connecting to. It supports SQL Server, Oracle, DB2, and a few others. Mm -hmm. And it just returns you a already set up instance ready to go. If you don't want to use any other connection string management, you just have to step down to a lower level than that factory. You create a config object that has your connection string in it and then call into a lower-level API to create that database instance. Oh, cool. So you can still do it. It's kind of one of those extensibility points. It's just not the common one that most people are going to be using. So I see that uh, we had a gentleman named Nate E. post something, which I thought was relevant, which was, does Entlib work with VS 2005 yet? Good question. That's a great question. So Entlib was originally designed to be best practice style guidance for .NET 1.1. And so it shipped compiled against, or not even compiled against, but shipped ready to be compiled against 1.1. That being said, in June, just last month, it was actually July 1st to be exact, they shipped an update that will compile under Visual Studio 2005. Ah. Now, why I say just compile is because it is not considered best practices for Visual Studio 2005. And you may oh. ask yourself why. Well, the reason is they really haven't done any more analysis from the standpoint of when they created Enterprise Library for 1.1, they said, here are the pieces that are kind of missing from the 1.1 framework and people have problems with. Yeah. Those holes are different in 2.0. And there's new tools in 2.0, right, that can make some of the architecture better. Partial classes being one that I can imagine they could use. Not only things that will make the architecture better, but also potentially new tools that obviate yes. some of the blocks that are in the enterprise library. Right. You shouldn't be using the Entlib ones. You should be using the built-in ones. A right. great example might be there's a whole security block which is intended for authenticating, authorizing users. Or the asynchronous process worker, whatever the background worker. Uh, there isn't anything in uh, Antlib that actually ties to background worker. Um, 
But but There's the security ex- one is replaced okay. by the personalization and membership stuff. Clearly, okay. Didn't um, that you know that's a clear one. Or, or the other one we mentioned earlier, the fact that they have a Depappy implementation. Yeah. There's one built into two O. Nice. You should use the one that's built into two O. And so there will be a later release of Enterprise Library, probably more or closer to the time that Widby goes out the door, which will be intended to be quote again best practices for Widby. In other words, it'll have the pieces that make sense based upon the analysis they've done of the 2.0 framework and where it's missing particular capabilities. All right, Chris, I got a question for you. Go and for it. It's second to last question. I think you know what the last one is. But the second to last question is, I want to know, and you don't have to name names, the strangest project you ever had to clean up. Ooh. Strangest <laughs> project. I've had to do a lot of those. I don't even know how you knew the whole cleanup thing. Well, I, I mean, guess you're a consultant. I'm a consultant. We end up spending a lot of our time doing that, right? I was a consultant. I don't do much yet. I don't do much anymore. But anymore, yeah, anymore. Geez, there were some weird ones. I'm just trying to think back to one of the more interesting ones that I had. Um, Absolutely, most bizarre. I cannot even think of one right now. I'm just drawing a blank. I wish you would have prepped me for this question because I probably would have come up with a good one for you. But um, Okay, maybe not bizarre. Maybe just the worst. To be quite honest, the MS Sales one that I talked about earlier was a cleanup project. Uh Um, I was brought into that because originally what had happened is that their IT group had actually provided them a front end to go against this data warehouse, and the end user said, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. And what ended up happening, and this is really bizarre, three guys from finance who were the project sponsors moved their offices over into the ITG group at Microsoft and decided they were going to write their own UI. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I got called in basically to help them out. Oh. And so it was kind of the four of us collaborating, essentially the three main business guys who knew what it needed to do from a business standpoint, and me from the standpoint that back then I was mainly an Excel developer. The first version was actually done with a beta version of Excel 5.0 using VBA, which was brand new at the time. Wow. And also a CDLL that I wrote to actually do all the data access because the data access stuff in VBA and Excel 5 was slow. Hmm. So we wrote our own ODBC shim. Hmm. But that was kind of a that wasn't a bizarre one, but that was a, you know, an unusual type save. But wow. I've done a few of those in the past. Okay, and now here comes the final question. You bet. What's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately, man? And I knew this question was coming because when Carl asked me to be on the show, I said, what do I need besides an answer to what I've downloaded lately? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I just knew it was coming. So You're the what first. I've downloaded lately, I've got two tools that I think are just so stinking cool. Um, they're by a German company called Passler. Are you familiar with these guys, Richard? No, never heard of them. Spell it. Passler.com is the name of the company. Um, I'm going to shrinksterize the URL. I was a bad kid. I probably should have already had it done for you guys. Um, so if you go to shrinkster.com, 6V as in Victor 3, they make a variety of interesting tools. The two that I use from them are one called PRTG Traffic Grapher and another one called IP Check. And what PRTG Traffic Grapher allows me to do is I run it on a box in my data center, in my rack, and it sits there and watches my managed switch 
and keeps track of how much traffic is passing in and out of every host in my data center. Nice. Nice. Graphs it in real time and actually shows me exactly how much traffic's flowing in and out, how much I'm using in aggregate. And not only is limited to traffic, it also, via um, SNMP, grabs things like how much disk space is left on my servers, what the processor utilization is, how much memory they're using, et cetera, and graphs that over time also. Hey, that's cool. Look at the screenshots. There's some nice, nice stuff there. Very cool app. And then the other one is IP check. And basically what IP check does is just make sure that all the various websites that I've got in there and my SMTP and my various services that are running are all up. Cool. And it monitors them all, sends me emails, pages me, SMSs when they go down. And it's just the one thing that I use to kind of keep track of what my availability looks like. Kicks out a report at the end of the week, shows me what the availability across all the sites have looked like, et cetera. Looks very similar to the kind of software that my ISP runs, just uh, on the monitors all over the building, you know. Probably so. I used to use one by a company called Freshwater Software that I really used to love. And then they, those guys got bought out by Mercury Interactive, and they, you know, increased the price by a hundredfold and priced me out of the market. So I was looking around for a long time until I found this IP check one by Passler. Hey, check out cool. Site Inspector. What's that? That looks pretty uh, cool, too. I actually have not played with Site Inspector, so I don't know. It looks like an explorer for for websites. Oh. Internal websites. It does page analysis, HTTP analysis. Huh. That might be Nifty. a new product they have. I didn't check that one out. These guys so, are pretty little cool. little German company. They're not real big, and I'm just real impressed with their products. They have some cool stuff. When they offer freeware versions, which yep. are kind of limited, but this product started at 50 bucks, like you can get started for not a whole bunch of money. That's quite reasonable. Cool. Yeah, I think, in fact, the PRTG one, I kind of ran using their 30-day demo one for about the first 30 days just to make sure it was going to you know, do what I wanted it to do, and it worked just fine. So I went ahead and ponied up and bought the version. I think even for what I'm doing, I've got you know, a couple hundred monitors of each of these, and I think my total sum cost is well under $1,000. Which compared to Very most nice. of the other monitoring tools yeah, out there, that's bad. dirt cheap. Well, Chris, you got any last minute words of wisdom to impart on our listeners? Uh, geez, I don't know. I'd, I'd say check out Enterprise Library. Very cool. Especially if you're doing .NET 1.0 and 1.1 stuff today and want some of the things that might be coming in Widby. There's kind of versions of them manifested in various ways inside of Enterprise Library. Uh, and I'd say check out SQL Server Integration Services in Widby. Uh, I've been actually running it on 64-bit lately, and the thing is smoking fast. It blows me away how fast that thing is. Chris, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and Jeff Maciolik in the sound room, Richard Campbell out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. Thanks a lot. We're old friends. It's always good to talk to you, and I hope to see you soon. Thanks.